0: Invite you to turn with me in our text to Daniel 10:13 and uh, hold your place there, and uh, open your Bible to Ephesians 6, uh, verses 10 through 18. So Daniel 10:13, which speaks of this spiritual war between angel Gabriel and who calls for help to Michael to war against this fallen angelic being uh, the prince of Persia and we have detoured from that point and are looking at not simply how these spiritual forces work within nations but how they work in our own lives this battle that we all have as Christians in our personal lives, in our families, in the church as well of Jesus Christ. So, Daniel 10 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Then turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints what I'm about to say uh, is true of a nation or an individual that is facing an enemy as we are To merely know your enemy, and even to know your enemy's tactics and strategy in coming against you, but not to know how to defend yourself against the enemy or to defeat your enemy will only lead to helplessness and hopelessness. It would almost be better to be ignorant of your enemy and of your enemy's tactics and not to know how you can defend yourself against the enemy, how you can defeat the enemy. Why resist or even try to resist the enemy if there are no resources to win in this battle? Why not simply surrender before the enemy? So far in our brief detour from Daniel chapter 10, we have identified from Scripture our enemy, the devil, and his demonic forces. We've also noted from an uh, an overview of biblical revelation, the temptations and the tactics that the enemy uses to come against us, to render us ineffective and to lead us to believe that we are helpless in this spiritual battle against such a mighty enemy. But now our focus turns away from knowing our enemy and knowing his tactics to knowing the resources, the almighty resources, the divine resources that God has given to us in Jesus Christ to defend ourselves against those attacks and those temptations and to overcome even our enemy in this battle. That's where we're going in the next few sermons. We are going to be considering our resources, divine resources, which are mighty. To the tearing down of our enemy's strongholds, we are told in Second Corinthians 10.4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is, mere flesh. But mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, the strongholds of the enemy. So we're not helpless. That's what the enemy would want us to think. That we can do nothing before him. Dear ones, we're not looking to peacefully coexist with the enemy just to get along in a peaceful way with the enemy. That's, That's not what we're seeking to do. But by God's grace and by his power, we're seeking to pull down all of his strongholds that he has set up by way of temptations that he brings against us in order to lead us into... Sin, those temptations that he brings against us to rob us of our joy, of our peace, and of our comfort in Jesus Christ. And those temptations that he brings against us to basically render us helpless before him and ineffective in our walk with the Lord Jesus and so our main points today's sermon are these. First of all, standing against the enemy. in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, and then standing in Christ's victory already accomplished in Ephesians 6:10. So let us consider our first main point, standing against the enemy. The Apostle Paul certainly does not present the opposition that we face against our spiritual enemy as a mere verbal disagreement that we have with Satan. Um, You know, we might have a verbal disagreement with our spouse or something like that. That's not the type of uh, situation we're talking about here with our spiritual enemy. We're talking about a spiritual warfare. We're talking about spiritual battle here. This is a real, though it's a spiritual war, it's a very real war. You see, the enemy wants to destroy us. That's certainly what he would do if he could, but he can't because we belong to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, as we'll see in the sermon today, has already overcome the enemy for us. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13 the Apostle Paul clearly warns us that we cannot take this battle against the enemy lightly. That as soon as we begin to take this battle as if no big deal, uh, as something we don't need to worry about, uh, nothing that we need to be concerned about, not that we should worry, but, but be concerned about, uh, that's what the enemy wants us to do, is to downplay the battle because he's much more effective in his subtlety, in his craftiness, and in his deception when we don't take the the battle seriously. But understand from these verses in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, understand these truths about this battle. This is not just someone of flesh and blood that makes themselves our enemy. This is a spiritual enemy that we cannot see. This is a spiritual enemy that has supernatural power. By that, I don't mean that he's more powerful than God. By that, I simply means, mean that he possesses power beyond that which we naturally possess here upon the earth, as supernatural power. Notice what... It says in Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, that's why we need to be ready. That's why we need to be armed for this battle that we face every day, because our enemy, being invisible and not needing rest not needing sleep because he doesn't have a body but is a spirit he can attack us at any time we we tend to think that again that the enemy only attacks us when we're the most vulnerable and the most weak whether bodily and ill and sick or spiritually discouraged. Certainly the enemy takes advantage of those kinds of situations in our life. But I dare say that the enemy also attacks. That's why we have to be always vigilant. Also attacks us when we do not feel vulnerable, when we do not necessarily feel weak bodily or weak spiritually. For example... Job was not feeling very vulnerable when the enemy attacked him. He was doing very well. He was not going through some deep struggle physically or spiritually. He was walking in faithfulness to the Lord when he was attacked. When Peter uh, was tempted to deny the Lord again, he didn't feel vulnerable at that time. He didn't feel as though he was going through a spiritual battle until the enemy began to, again, lay into him. He didn't feel as though he was going through a, a very weak period of time in his life. That's why we're taught in 1 Corinthians ten, twelve. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. So the enemy can attack us when we're bodily vul- vulnerable, spiritually vulnerable, but also when we're not. We can't, we can't just uh, look at this battle in, in that kind of a way. Yes, we need to be ready when we're weak, but we also need to be ready when we're strong. Also notice about this enemy and this battle, that this is not a sloppy, lazy, uh, or disorganized enemy. His clear objective is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And to make us ineffective in our walk with Jesus Christ. In verse 12, once again, notice the groupings the ranks that are mentioned with regard to this enemy which tells us this is a very well organized enemy principalities powers rulers of the darkness of this world spiritual wickedness in high places this is an enemy that works together for evil they have a unity in that which is evil in order they share the same common goal they're not fighting or, uh, with one another uh, over you know, the, their goal, their objective. That is to destroy us. They're all united together in that. So this is, understand, this is a, a well-ordered enemy by way of rank and by way of taking orders and by way of seeking to destroy God's people but for, again, the grace of God, but for the power of Jesus Christ, uh, we would fall before this enemy. Since the enemy doesn't need any rest, as we noted, because it's not a bodily enemy, uh, while we're sleeping, we need rest. While we're sleeping, what's our enemy doing? Our enemy is plotting. Our enemy is planning those temptations against us because he needs no rest. We also note from these verses that this is not an enemy that that lets us know in advance uh, when he's going to attack. He doesn't make an appointment and say, be ready, I'm going to attack. I'm going to bring this temptation on this day of the week. Uh, at this hour, so be ready. He doesn't give us any forewarning that way. But this is this is a crafty, a deceitful enemy that knows where our weaknesses are. In verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against. Notice the wiles of the devil, the craftiness. The word wiles there uh, actually is... Uh, the word from which we get our word method, uh, the methods, the scheming, plotting methods of the devil to lure us away by way of temptations and suggestions from Jesus Christ. You see, that's that's his success. To the degree he can lure us away from Jesus Christ, to that degree... He can bring against us those temptations that will lead us into sin. To the degree that he cannot lead us away from Jesus Christ, to that same degree, we will be able to stand against the enemy. Just like, uh, again, a flock of sheep. Lure one of the sheep away from the shepherd and it goes off into the wilderness or the mountains, away from the shepherd, that sheep is going to be most most vulnerable uh, to attacks. But when the sheep are together following the shepherd, the shepherd will protect the sheep. So that's the goal of the enemy, to take us away from the Lord Jesus. And let us, in these verses, also see that spiritual laziness, spiritual apathy, spiritual lukewarmness are not neutral. Uh, They're not indifferent in the Christian life, but are indeed sins. To be lukewarm is not, you know, somewhere in the middle of a sin or not a sin. Uh, No, lukewarmness in our lives, apathy in our lives, spiritual laziness in our lives is a sin. Why? Because, again, it leads us away from Christ. It, uh, here in these verses, Ephesians 6, and including verse 14 as well, 11 through 14, four different times uh, we are told to stand. To stand, or to withstand, which is a form of, in the Greek, a form of the same verb, to stand. And so, four different times, you you would think, again, the Lord only needs to say to say that to us once, right? To stand. But when the Lord says it four times within just a few verses, he really wants us to understand you can't be neutral in this battle. You can't be lazy. You've got to stand. You've got to be vigilant against the enemy if you would not be subdued by the temptations of the enemy who seeks to lure you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not a suggestion to stand or to withstand the enemy. It's not an option for us to stand or to withstand the enemy. This is an order from our commanding officer. This is an order from our captain This is an order from King Jesus to stand and to resist this enemy. And to not do so is sin when we do not stand against the enemy. It's a sin against Christ. It's a sin against his word for he calls us to stand. Notice these verses that do speak of standing or withstanding in verse 11 notice put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil we'll be talking about the the armor specifically in subsequent sermons as we consider each of those pieces of armor but notice the lord through paul says Don't put on one or two pieces of the armor. Put on the whole armor. Don't leave any of the armor off because whatever piece of armor you leave off, you are vulnerable to the enemy in that particular area. Put on the whole armor of God. And what's the reason? What's the purpose? That ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The implication here is that if we do not put on the whole armor of God, we will not be able to stand against the cunning devices and the wiles of the devil by way of temptation if we do not put on the whole armor. Notice also in verse 13. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, once again emphasizing not a part of the armor, not two or three pieces, not even most of the pieces, but the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. Here, again, it's a form of the same word that's used in verse 11. Here uh, it is withstand rather than merely stand. That's how it's translated in. Uh, in our English language to stand is histamine, in the Greek uh, language and withstand is anthisteme uh, so you can see it's simply adding basically a small preposition onto the on the front of the verb which means to stand against to withstand to resist the enemy to oppose the enemy don't just be Falling asleep. Don't just be uh, uh, without your armor, but rather stand and withstand the enemy. Likewise, we find in James 4 7 Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Notice, and this is the same. Word as is used in Ephesians 6 13, where it's translated withstand, but here it's translated resist. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Likewise in 1 Peter 5 8 through 9. Be sober, be vigilant, that is, watchful, because your adversary, the devil, As a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And again, notice. Whom resist. That's the same word that's translated withstand. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You're not unique. Going through temptation. Here we find Peter saying... This is happening to all Christians throughout the world, that they are being tempted, they are being tried, they are being afflicted by way of temptations. That's how we ought to view temptations, as afflictions. That's what he calls them here, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And so the same command, resist, resist, resist. Don't give in to the temptations of the enemy. Say no, which we have by God's grace, and we're going to talk about this more in just a moment, but we have the power living and dwelling within us, purchased for us by Jesus Christ upon the cross and through his resurrection to be able to say no. No, I will resist that temptation that is coming again. I may have fallen many times into that temptation in the past, but by God's grace, there is power, there is strength in Jesus Christ to say no to that temptation, to flee to Christ, not away from Christ, but to flee to Him and to put on the whole armor of God. Verse 13 as well. At the end of verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and notice. And having done all, that is, having done all by way of putting on the whole armor of God, then to stand. Again, histemi, the same uh, verb that's used uh, in verse 11, histemi, to stand. And then in verse 14, Stand, therefore. And then it goes on to talk about the various pieces of the armor of God that we are to uh, take upon ourselves, that we are to put on. But the command, stand, therefore. This is not optional. This is not a suggestion. This is a command from King Jesus. Stand against these temptations, the attacks of the enemy against you. And so our our orders from King Jesus are summarized by those two words, stand and withstand. Interestingly, the picture that we have here is not of the Christian going out to conquer new territory. But the picture we have here is that the territory has already been purchased and won for us by Jesus Christ. Now stand and defend that territory that Jesus Christ has won and purchased. Stand and hold that territory that Jesus Christ has won, whether it's in your lives your own personal lives, stand and hold that territory that Jesus is Lord of and Lord of your life. Stand. Or whether the territory is your family, stand and defend your family against the attacks of the enemy. Don't join hands with him. Stand. You're a Christian family. Even if there's only one believer in the family, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.14, that's a Christian family. Stand. Stand and defend the church of Jesus Christ against the attacks of the enemy. That is territory that Jesus Christ has won and purchased. Do not give way that holy ground that the Lord has purchased, namely his church. And even the nations belong to Jesus Christ. Everything has been put beneath the feet of Christ. He is Lord of all. And so we stand even to defend his divine right, his crown rights as king of kings and lord of lords over this nation. All of it is already his by divine and legal right, which he purchased when he died upon the cross and was raised from the dead. Stand there. That's what Paul is admonishing us to do. Stand there to the end and fight with all your might in the power of Jesus Christ, not in your own strength, but in the power of Jesus Christ to defend it for the glory of Christ was king of kings and lord of lords. And dear ones, just as you would think of standing and defending your own personal life against the enemy who would seek to destroy you, don't fight any less to defend your marriage against the enemy who would seek to destroy your marriage. And just as you would By God's grace, stand to defend your marriage against the enemy. So likewise, stand against the enemy who would seek to destroy the church. And just as you would seek to defend the church and to stand against the enemy who seeks to destroy the church, stand for the crown rights of Jesus Christ over this nation. Don't fight any less. Just because the farther you move away from your own personal life doesn't mean we fight any less to stand in Jesus Christ for his own crown rights over our family, our marriage, over his church, over a nation. We fight. We stand in the strength of the Lord in each of these spheres, that he has appointed our own personal lives, our family, marriage, the church, and nation. And so I ask, are you, are you fighting against the enemy as much to defend Christ's church? As you do to fight against the enemy and in, defend, in, in defending your own life, against the enemy? Are you fighting to, to defend your marriage as much as you are fighting against the enemy in order to defend your own personal life, against the attacks of the enemy? Our second main point, standing in Christ's victory already accomplished. We go back to verse 10 of, this, of these verses, Ephesians 6.10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian brethren from a, a Roman prison. Uh, he says, for example, in Ephesians 3.1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And then in uh, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to, that ye walk worthy of vocation wherewith ye are called. In this letter to the Ephesian believers to the church of Ephesus, he spent the first three chapters explaining the doctrine of salvation and also explaining our union together, whether Jews or Gentiles, our union together as one body, as one church. The Lord didn't come in order to set up Different churches, based upon uh, again some antipathy to uh, different nationalities. Certainly, there may be within different nations different churches based upon that culture, based upon that language, and that type of thing. But we are not different, we should be able to worship according to the same doctrine and worship and government of the church. Uh, That is God's Christ's will. We should be able to worship wherever we go, throughout the world, because we hold to the same doctrine, worship and and church government. And so, the last three chapters, chapters 4 through 6, of this letter to the Ephesians, is the practical application of the doctrine that has been given in chapters 1 through 3. And so, Doctrine and then application. That's a good model to follow in preaching as well. That we are not to be only speaking of that which is practical, but we are to speak first and foremost about that which is true, that which is according to God's word in teaching and instruction and in God's commandments. And then we are to apply that which he has revealed to our lives. That ought to be the model that we follow. And as we come to Ephesians 6.10, Paul draws his words in this letter to a conclusion when he says, Finally, my brethren. And what he emphasizes here is that, in closing, his remarks. These are his closing remarks. He wants the Ephesians to realize that there is a real spiritual battle, there is a real spiritual enemy that will work to hinder both doctrine and practice, namely the devil and his evil forces. But we are not helpless. Uh, We are not hopeless in Jesus Christ with regard to all of the temptations and the attacks that the enemy brings against us. This is what I want to leave with you in this last main point, uh, this Lord's Day. We cannot fight, dear ones, this battle against this enemy uh, in our own strength. That should be obvious. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against these demonic forces. We will lose every time if we think that we can battle this enemy in our own strength. We must be, as Paul says, we must be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, in verse 10. Now what does that imply, that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might? What does that imply, practically speaking? Well, it implies a number of things. Let me suggest, as we focus upon this before the closing of the sermon today, it implies that jesus has already won the victory over the devil and that it is by our union with christ and by our communion with christ that we are able to access his strength and his power to overcome the enemy that's what we ought to understand when it says be strong in The Lord in union and in communion with the Lord. Be strong by way of being united to Christ and enjoying fellowship and communion with Christ. Be strong in that and in the power of His might. Another implication, it implies those words imply that Satan is actually the one that is helpless. And hopeless. Not we who are Christians who are in Christ and communing with Christ that are helpless and hopeless. You see, that's what the enemy would want us to think, right? Uh, to bring us to that place where uh, we feel as though we can't do anything about the attacks, the temptations, that we're just uh, uh, like... Uh, like an animal that has a ring through its nose and is being pulled where, wherever the enemy wants to take us. That's what the enemy wants us to think as Christians, but that's not the case. He is actually the one with the ring in the nose. He can only go as far as the Lord Jesus will allow him to go. He is limited, he is bound by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's Christ's power and strength that will tear down all of the enemy's strongholds, as we mentioned in 2 Corinthians 10.4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Jesus is Lord over all. Yes, Jesus is Lord even over Satan and over all of his demonic forces. You see, Satan does not willingly submit to the authority and to the power of Jesus Christ. He doesn't on his own freely come and just bow down before Jesus Christ. He must submit uh, to Christ's power. He is forced to submit to Christ's power, just as the demons didn't just willingly come out of those that they possessed during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They came out screaming because they didn't want to come out, but they had to come out. They had to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Another implication is when we hear, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This implies that by Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and Christ's ascension, being enthroned at the right hand of God, that Jesus has already gained victory. Victory as our mediator, on our behalf, over Satan, by his death, resurrection, and ascension. You see, the scripture teaches Satan is already, dear ones, already legally conquered and defeated even if he is permitted by the Lord to work in various ways before he is destroyed and cast into hell. Colossians 2.15 says, And having spoiled, that is, plundered, principalities and powers, that would be all these ranks of, of demonic forces. Having spoiled or plundered principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. When did he do that? He did that in his death. He did that in his resurrection. He triumphed over all of his enemies. If it was up to Satan, Satan uh, Jesus would have remained in the tomb. He would have remained in the grave. He would not have been raised from the dead. But it wasn't up to Satan because Satan doesn't have the power. He's a creature. He's under the thumb of the Lord God. And so when it says, and having spoiled, that is, plundered principalities and powers, what's the spoil? What is it that, he, that Jesus spoiled or plundered? It's our souls. It's us. That we were taken out from the kingdom of darkness. Taken out from the rule of Satan. And we were brought into his marvelous kingdom. His marvelous light. That's been accomplished already, dear ones. He's already plundered. He's already spoiled his enemy. And Hebrews 2.14 says, For as much then... As the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. He died in order to destroy death through his resurrection. That Satan cannot hold that over us any longer. As a fear, as something that causes panic in our hearts. He used to be able to do that before we were brought to Jesus Christ, but he cannot do so because he overcame death for us. Dear ones, understand, and this is probably one of the most helpful truths I have found personally to be able to use in my own Christian life in overcoming the temptations that I face which may not be the same temptations that you faced though they may be the same temptations that many of you face or have faced as I consider you know all the years and I look back over my life various kinds of temptations which I'm not at all Um, proud of or thankful you know of having fallen into those temptations ashamed of and yet through those failures God has taught I believe me to understand to a much greater degree and I hope for you as well the significance of what is taught in Romans chapter 6. Verses 1 through 2, and then verse 6 and verse 14 of the same chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So notice that. We are dead to sin. Then Verse 6 Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that is, with Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. It's been, again, it was crucified with Christ, the body of sin. Verse 14 For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. You see, dear ones, what's being taught here is that when Christ died, just as he died for us to redeem us from our sins, from the guilt of our sin, so he also died for us in order to purchase and redeem us from the power and dominion of sin in our lives. That's not something that is yet to be accomplished That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He set us free from the guilt and penalty of our sin, the condemnation and the curse of our sin, but also from the dominion and the power of sin over us as Christians. Does that mean that we are going to live sinlessly? No, it doesn't mean we're going to live sinlessly because we will continue to be Weak, none of us again have been perfected uh, to that glorified state in which we sin no longer. But I think that that truth, that I died with Jesus Christ so that sin, so that the world, so that the evil desires uh, in my flesh, and so that Satan no longer has dominion and power over me. And I'm to reckon that to be true. That's what faith is all about. I'm to say, not because it's the power of positive thinking. No, it's a truth. It's something as real as as Jesus dying for the guilt and the penalty of my sin. If you believe that Jesus died to forgive you of your sins... And that's what you're trusting in is Jesus death for you. To save you from the condemnation of sin. And your faith is in Christ. So likewise, dear ones, must your faith be in Christ that he set you free from the power and the dominion of sin over your life. So that you are no longer a slave that has to be led about like i said with like an animal with an uh, a nose ring just just being pulled in whatever direction sin or satan would want to pull you that's not true of a christian so how do you practically avail yourself of this truth let me just share with you how The Lord has changed my life by simply saying when I am tempted in a particular area and I know that that is something, a road I do not want to go down. Lord, I say, I account that I am dead to that temptation through my union with Jesus Christ who died for me. And I died with him. And I was raised, when he was raised from the the dead, I was raised with him to new life. So that, again, that sin, Satan, the flesh, the world does not have dominion over me. Jesus has dominion over me, he is my Lord. And dear ones, the more we exercise faith in that truth, sin shall not have dominion over you. Satan shall not have dominion over you. The more we account that to be true as a reality, as a fact, the more you will find the power of God, the strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The more you will find the Lord working in your life. Applying that truth. Again, that's not the power of positive thinking. That's trusting the promise of God. That's trusting in what God has, Christ has already accomplished. So we can either believe the lies of Satan, who would uh, come alongside us and would say, that's a myth. Uh, that's not going to help at all for you to account yourself to be dead to sin, or to, to, to me, Satan. Uh, that's the temptation that will come. Is, uh, that's, that's just hocus-pocus. That's not going to accomplish anything. But that's, what the, that's the way the enemy comes, by way of lying to us. He's the father of lies. The Lord calls us to believe and to trust him. Account yourself to be dead, to sin, to the flesh, to the world, To Satan, account yourself having died with Christ. That means that again, it's like sin, the flesh, the world, the devil is like a corpse upon the cross or a corpse within the tomb. Let's not be pulling down the corpse from the cross Let's not be pulling, taking, rolling the stone away from the tomb, that dead corpse. That speaks of its dominion over us. Let's keep it. We died with Christ. But what was, came forth was the life of Christ. What came forth from the tomb is that which the Holy Spirit has made us to be alive to desire, to want, to to have his power within us, living within us to overcome those temptations from the enemy. Dear ones, as as we close, if we continue only to look at our sins and temptations, That the enemy brings against us, and we only continue to cry out to God but not reckon our death to sin and Satan to be legally true. I can talk to you and I can share with you all about the armor of God and how we ought to put it on, and I can describe to you what each of those pieces of armor represents. But dear ones, if you do not recognize what Jesus has already accomplished in overcoming your enemy, that there is victory. You're not a victim. You are a victor. You are an overcomer in Jesus Christ. If you do not begin there, then all the discussion about the armor of God and putting it on isn't going to matter a whole lot. Because, you see, none of us perfectly puts on the armor of God Sometimes though we know what armor we ought to put on, we don't put certain pieces of the armor on. And the enemy will, uh, by way of his darts, be able to send those fiery darts by way of temptation to us. That's going to change how we put our armor on. That's changeable in this life and in the circumstances that we face from day to day. But one thing that will never change is that Jesus Christ has already overcome the devil and all of his wicked forces. He is already King of kings and Lord of lords. And I have died with Christ and I have been raised with Christ and I have ascended with Christ. That's not going to change. And that's how, ultimately, that we're going to talk about the armor and the importance of putting the armor on. If we don't have this foundation that we've laid in Jesus Christ, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, then all the talk about the armor is going to, again, be good, biblical, I think we're going to find that we continue to suffer great affliction, as I said, because none of us puts that armor on perfectly. But there is something that is perfect, something that never changes, and that's what Jesus has already accomplished for us, His people, because He loved us. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes our lives. That gives us hope. We may not, again, we may suffer from feeling helpless and and hopeless because we don't put the armor on the way that we should. But dear ones, our hope is not based upon our faithfulness. And putting the armor on, our hope is based upon that which never changes. Our hope is based upon Jesus Christ who has, through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, overcome the guilt of sin, the curse of sin, and the power of sin and of the enemy against us. That is what is our hope. Unchangeable. And that's where we flee to. That's where we go every day to find hope is in what Jesus has already accomplished for us, his people. Lord, help us again to walk in the victory, in the strength, in the power of his might. Amen. Please stand with me. Prayer. Our glorious God and Savior, how we thank thee and praise thee for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Not a a fallible, uncertain hope, but a hope that is absolutely certain because Jesus has already accomplished redemption. He has already accomplished redemption and payment and deliverance for us from the guilt of our sin from the condemnation of our sin and from the power of sin over us our Lord we rest in that today and we account by faith we account that to be true of us that we died with Christ when we were raised with Christ and we ascended with Christ our life is hid in Jesus Christ He is our life. He is our all in all. We pray, Father, grant to us much grace, patience, and persevering in the midst of all manner of trials and afflictions, tribulations in this life that the enemy uses in order to render us helpless and hopeless, in order to render us ineffective in our Christian life. But our God, uphold us, help us to stand and to resist and to withstand the attacks of the enemy against us in the power of thy might. In Jesus' name, amen.